The day after the elections, I was in my office trying to process and understand who our community was and how everyone was feeling. Emotions were running high, so I tried to summarize the polarization of feelings and wrote this pastoral reflection on the day after the elections. Some are deeply hurting. Others are wildly rejoicing. Some see hope. Others see despair. Some say, how can you? Others say, why can't I? Some feel vindicated, others invalidated. Some say, defend yourself, others choose their privacy. Some can't believe it, others knew it was inevitable. Some want to leave, others want to stay. Some are fighting, others choose not to engage. Some really care, others couldn't care less. Some can't understand, others see it clearly. Some say it will be the same. Others say it will be different. Some choose to cancel. Others desire unity. Some want to protest. Others say move on. Some are called ignorant. Others are called elitist. Some say the past is the past. Others say the past matters. Some can't forgive. Others say we must. Some say the process worked. Others say it needs to be fixed. Some declare it's God's will. Others declare it's God's discipline. Living in such polarized times, I'm glad this world is not my ultimate home, and one day Jesus will reign. Until such time, Christ's followers have one mission, and it is to share and reflect Jesus in our words and actions and through social media. Amidst the differences of opinions, are we reflecting Christ's likeness? After posting my reflections on social media, most all of the responses were very positive. Apparently, my thoughts resonated with what they were feeling and had experienced, and they appreciated that I had put it into words. But it was no surprise that I received a few responses that said I didn't go far enough with empathizing with their plight, whether with the victor or the losers. I knew with emotions and feelings running very high, not everyone will be fully satisfied with what I wrote. But I put it out there because it's important to be involved in the political process as our responsibility as a Christian living in this world, and yet with a spiritual perspective. We can engage the secular community in the political process and be relevant without necessarily allowing politics to be a stumbling block for dissension and division. As David Clausen writes, Christian witness in the public square contributes transcendent values about morals and ethical issues. Christian withdrawal opens a moral vacuum susceptible to influences that pressure government to move outside the purview designated by God. Politics affects government, shapes society, and influences culture. Because of what the Bible teaches and the inevitability of its effect on our culture, Christians must care about politics. But now after the elections, how then should we relate to the governing authorities that are currently in place or will soon be in place, especially if we don't like the leaders or we didn't vote for them, if they espouse policies and platforms which we believe are wrong or inconsistent with God's Word, to what extent do we submit to their authority and to what extent should we fight and protest? That is what we want to discuss in this message. Because one of the ways we reflect Christ's likeness to an unbelieving world is through how we relate with the government. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Romans chapter 13 as we take a look at verses 1 to 7. Romans chapter 13, verses 1 to 7, as we draw out three biblical principles for how we are to relate 
to governing authorities. I read now verses 1 and 2. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. It is clear from these two verses that every person is to submit themselves to the authority of the government, because the government's authority is derived from God, who has ultimate authority over all things as part of His sovereignty. Everyone means everyone, and no exception is made if you like the current leader or not, or if you voted for the person or not. We are to submit ourselves to the authority of the government. The Bible further tells us that the governing authorities are appointed by God, meaning they have come to power because God has allowed them to come to power. And with this truth, some may wonder why God would appoint and allow evil and corrupt leaders to come to power. To answer this question, we need to understand something about God's sovereign will. Just because He allows something to happen doesn't mean He approves of it. Let me repeat it because it is important to understand. Just because God allows something isn't necessarily what He approves of. For example, God allowed Adam and Eve to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and thus sin came upon mankind. God didn't rush in to intervene to stop them from eating it, but God didn't approve of them doing so because of His clearly stated prohibition against it. Another example is that God hates divorce and disapproves of it, and it is explicitly stated in the book of Malachi. But because of the sinfulness of mankind, God allows for it in certain cases, as mentioned in Matthew chapter 19 and 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Therein lies a theological tension of God's sovereign will and man's choice working together perfectly, even if it doesn't fully make sense in our limited human minds. Because mankind is responsible for their own actions, even with God's sovereign will, we should not blame God for our choices and decisions and the consequences that come with it. But we should also not say that someone must be God's approved choice, since He allows for him or her to be the leader. Therefore, the leader can do no wrong. His or her actions are only seen through God-ordained spiritual lenses, and any criticism against the leader must be an attack against God. Both thoughts would be wrong and a faulty understanding of how God's sovereignty and human responsibility and choice work together. Each of us have responsibilities, and each of us have to live with the consequences of our decisions and choices, knowing that in God's sovereign will, He does allow us to make mistakes and suffer its consequences. So it would be foolish and unbiblical to say that all leaders must be God's choice or God's appointed simply because they won an election, were successful in a coup, won a board fight, or however they gained their leadership position. Winning or being leadership doesn't mean the winner or the leader is right and somehow validates their platform and positions as being God-ordained. And on the flip side, it doesn't mean the loser or those who are not leaders are somehow wrong and their platform and positions are not God-ordained. The Bible teaches that truth is not derived or defined by the majority. So leaders and their supporters have to be very careful about speaking on behalf of God on what is right and what is wrong. Truth is based on the Bible. Leaders are in their positions because of man's choices and actions that God allowed to happen to accomplish His greater purpose, which we may or may not understand. 
That's why, again, we are called to submit to their authority. And this is where trust and faith comes in, when we can learn to accept that His sovereign will has allowed certain governments to come into power and have ruling authority. Then we are to submit to their authority as ultimately it is from the Lord, which is what verses 1 and 2 tells us. This truth of human governments ultimately being appointed by God is comforting because just as quickly as God allowed them to be installed into power, He can allow for their removal. Remember the words of the prophet Daniel when God revealed to him His unfolding kingdom plan as revealed in Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel chapter 2, verses 20 to 21. Daniel chapter 2, verses 20 to 21. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are His, and He changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise. Here the Bible tells us God allows good and godly men and women to rule for a time, and He allows unrighteous and godless men and women to rule for a season. All kings and presidents, good and bad, serve for a season in accordance with God's will. But in whatever type of government, as followers of Christ, we are called to submit. And this is our first biblical principle number one. Submit to governing authorities because they are appointed by God. Submit to governing authorities because they are appointed by God. This truth may be hard to accept and swallow, especially if we don't like the governing authorities. But we need to humbly remind ourselves that we don't know the mind of God, so we can't fully understand how His good and perfect will works. Sometimes His sovereign will, in the context of governments, allows for the blessing and prosperity of a nation and its people. And in other times, His sovereign will is to allow for the discipline, refinement, and cleansing of a nation and its people. We see this play out throughout the history of Israel through their various kings and rulers based on the spiritual condition of the people. In fact, the prophet Habakkuk could not understand why God would use the evil, corrupt, pagan nation of Babylon to rule and oppress the people of Israel. But God revealed to him that it was for the discipline of the nation of Israel to bring them back to the Lord. You see, sinful leaders and corrupt governments can still accomplish good as part of God's plan. Just like good, well-intentioned leaders and effective governments can still make mistakes with long-lasting effects. However, the nation of Babylon would not go unpunished. They would be severely disciplined and punished for their oppression of the people of Israel. So know that the fair and perfect God of justice will make sure all people will answer for all of their actions, both Christians and non-Christians alike. The central verse for the book of Habakkuk is found in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4 says this, Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. The just shall live by his faith. God was telling the prophet Habakkuk and all of us, you may not fully understand what is happening, but don't you worry. You just live by faith and trust that I know what I'm doing. Throughout the Scriptures and history, godly men and women of faith have asked God why. Often the answer is not revealed, only that God says, trust me as the sovereign, all-powerful God who sees all and knows all. I know what I'm doing. This is the very basic premise of the entire book of Job. In fact, some of the greatest leaders in history were people you didn't expect to be great leaders, like King David, 
Abraham Lincoln or Ronald Reagan, and even the current leader of Ukraine, who was an actor with no political experience prior to his election as president, is now an inspiration of the world standing up to Russia. This example is not meant to say that leaders don't need experience. We talked about the importance of experience in the first message of this series. I'm simply pointing out that when God allows a leader to be appointed, it can be for the blessing or discipline of a nation and its people. So every leader and governing authority are accomplishing the purpose that God wants them to do. That's why Romans chapter 8, verse 28 says this. Romans 8, 28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. God's sovereign plan is beyond the realm of our full understanding and comprehension. For example, if we were one of Jesus' followers when He was here on earth, it would not make sense why the sinless Jesus had to die. It would seem to us unfair that the corrupt religious leaders were able to bribe the Roman authorities and find false witnesses to have Jesus arrested, tried, and then crucified. They even succeeded in convincing the crowds in Jerusalem to choose to release the criminal Barabbas over the innocent Jesus. And yet, in God the Father's sovereign plan, this was the way it had to be in order for Christ, the Son of God, to die for the sins of all mankind and provide salvation to all people of all generation. This is Romans chapter 8, verse 28, illustrated. Oh, there were many who could not understand and tried to fight it. People like Peter, who drew his sword and cut off a man's ear to prevent the arrest of Jesus. But Jesus knew the Father's divine purpose and submitted to it. His prayer at Gethsemane, not my will, but your will be done. In these sensitive times, I should also clarify that I am in no way justifying injustice, nor am I equating Jesus or Barabbas with any political leader. I'm simply making a point that God allows things to happen that is for our good, and it is often beyond our comprehension. I know that some wonder if prayers are even effective because they prayed earnestly, like never before, that a certain someone would be the leader. In fact, their fervent prayer was for someone whom they believed was most closely aligned with God and biblical principles. But their prayers were not answered, and the leader they don't like is still in office, or the leader they think unqualified won the election. A few things to note. First, God is on no one's side. God is on His own side, and we all are to align with Him and not to pull Him into alignment with our side and our position. Second, when we pray, do we follow the example of Jesus in Gethsemane and even in the Lord's sample prayer when He taught us how to pray? When we humbly submit in prayer, your will be done. Third, prayer doesn't mean individual decisions and choices don't have consequences. We should not blame God that our prayers to Him are ineffective if, let's say, a campaign is not run well or if the people choose to ignore certain truths. Prayers alone won't negate the effects of propaganda and fake news, especially if people are not willing to discern. A proper biblical understanding of prayer reminds us that our prayers are to express to God what is on our hearts and our heart's desire, and to acknowledge our submission to His good and perfect will, and then to humbly and gladly accept whatever is His reply, whether yes, no, or wait. 
It is spiritually immature to declare that prayers are useless simply if you don't get your way. In this way, your prayers are disrespectful demands of God for getting your place and His position. But the Lord knows your frustrations, disappointments, sadness, and even anger. But it is in the acceptance and recognition that God's sovereign plan is for our best, even when we don't fully understand it, that we will be at peace. The acknowledgement of God's sovereign will in approving the human means of choosing governments and leaders should encourage us to look up and be hopeful, recognizing that all is not lost. For there is someone who is in a higher authority and position that will make sure that his people are taken care of and leaders are held accountable. And if that requires removing a leader, then he can and will act on it. We see this most evidently in God's protection of the Jewish people throughout their history to ensure that they are not wiped off from the face of the earth by the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, the Nazis, and in the future by the Antichrist in the future Great Tribulation. We should have hope and be encouraged that it is the Lord God who is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Now, having established the principle that we are to submit to governing authorities because they are appointed by God, you may ask the question, what if the leaders don't govern well and the governing authorities tell us to do things against God and against the biblical principles found in the Scriptures? Remember, just because a leader or a government is appointed by God doesn't mean they only do what is right. It can do no wrong. Look with me at verses 3 to 5 of Romans chapter 13. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. Here in these verses, the Bible tells us that governments are supposed to do good. They are to rule the people under the responsibilities with law and order for the people's benefit. And with this truth statement, then those who submit to a government's authority and do good themselves by obeying the law set forth do not have anything to worry about or to be afraid of, but will in fact be praised. Now the first thing that may jump into your mind from your own personal experience is, my government is corrupt. They lead only to enrich themselves and do not govern for the good of the people. So when it says here that governments are for our good, this is only an idealistic case and certainly not applicable in my country. Maybe Paul was writing this letter while being governed by a just and right ruler. However, remember, Paul was writing this letter to the people of Rome, and history tells us that while efficient and effectively espousing the ideals of the republic form of government, the Roman government was hardly good and righteous. The system had rampant corruption, nepotism, cronyism, political intrigue, bribery, encouraged an unfair class system, systemic racism, and unfair trade and business practices. And yet Paul was able to write that governments are generally good and we are to submit to their authority regardless of how much corruption and sinfulness there is among the leaders. Now, before you get all riled up at me for saying this, please listen carefully and understand what the Bible is teaching. 
There is no such thing as a perfect government where all leaders and officials are sinless. Because governments are made up of people and all people are sinful, therefore sinful practices will be found in all governments and among all leaders. This is true in the political world. This is true in the business world, in the educational world, and even in churches. Where there are people, there will be sin and thus sinful practices. Even the most righteous leaders can be tempted and corrupted, and no one is without sin. That's why except for Jesus, almost every great leader or king in the Bible had a sinful act mentioned of them, like Adam, Job, Noah, Abraham, Jacob, Moses, David, Solomon, Elijah, Hezekiah, Josiah, Peter, Thomas, John, James, Paul, and so on. That's why in every government, there should be checks and balances, such as in our governmental system, with the executive, legislative, and judicial branches of government co-equal and independent and used to keep an eye out on each other, not allowing one person to have unrestrained power. It was the Catholic John Dalberg Acton who famously remarked, power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Great men are almost always bad men, which he wrote to a bishop in opposition to the doctrine of papal infallibility being argued as dogma in the First Vatican Council of 1869 to 1870. That's why any organization, from governments to businesses, Schools and even churches must have accountability and checks and balances because all people have a sin nature. Now, I realize some of you may be wondering, are there certain sins that leaders in government do that should disqualify them from leadership because you can think of some? And the answer is yes, there are. Just as there are qualifications for spiritual leaders in the church that if they fail to live up to them, would disqualify them from spiritual leadership. As the Bible sets forth qualifications for church leaders, the laws of each country define the qualifications needed for leaders of their own governments. Our country has an impeachment process by which to remove leaders if they do not meet those qualifications or commit sins that disqualify them from leadership. Commissions on elections set up rules by which candidates need to comply with in order to be eligible to run for office. Now, you may not always agree with their decisions, but they are governed by a set of qualifications codified into law. Therefore, it is the responsibility of each one of us to educate one another, to choose leaders that will make sure each of the branches of government maintain independence, to provide accountability, and to enforce judicial consequences for breaking the law. Now, we're not here to argue the merits of the law and how they are implemented both historically and in the present. And notice it is also not a priority of the Apostle Paul to do so when he writes this letter to Christians in Rome against the backdrop of a very corrupt and sinful Roman government. Not a mention of the Roman government and its leaders and the many injustices they have done. In this case, silence does not mean approval, nor does it condone what has been done. Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has already addressed those issues by teaching the biblical principles that sets forth the standards of a holy God and leaves it up to each Christian and how they are to apply those principles in their current settings. Just like in our church, we teach the biblical principles and leave the application of biblical truths to each believer to apply in their lives as they are convicted by the Holy Spirit. It is not the primary responsibility of the church, according to the Bible, 
to call out every leader in the world of politics, business, education, and in other places for their sins, because then I would simply read names every week, including perhaps maybe some of yours. God is the ultimate judge, and He has appointed governmental authorities, as imperfect as they are, to temporarily provide justice and judgment under the laws of the country. Since no government is perfect, but each government is appointed by God, then as terrible and inefficient a government is, it still does provide some law and order. And God is a God of order. Even those living under a dictatorship would rather live under that rule of law than in a failed state where there is no government. Just ask the people of Somalia, Yemen, Syria, and South Sudan. Verses 4 to 5 tell us that governments have the authority to exact judgment upon those who are doing evil. In fact, they have God's authority as His minister to avenge and dole out justice against those who do evil. Therefore, it is to our benefit to submit to the authority of the government and the nation's laws for our protection, lest we incur the punishment both from God and from men, according to these verses. Even as a God of grace and mercy, God is also a God of law and order. Here we can extrapolate our second biblical principle, biblical principle number two. Pray for our leaders as governments are God's channel for promoting good and maintaining order. Pray for our leaders as governments are God's channel for promoting good and maintaining order. Now, while governments are supposed to punish evil and do good, what if they don't? Let's discuss two scenarios. The first scenario is what if a leader or government goes against what the Bible explicitly teaches and forces you to commit sin? And the second scenario is what do you do with a leader or government that goes against what the Bible teaches, but you are not forced to participate in that sinful act? Let's consider these two scenarios. Scenario one is when the government forces you to go against what the Bible teaches, and in the process is forcing you to sin against God. In this case, you and I do not have to submit to the government and its leaders on that matter and instead obey God, but we would have to be willing to suffer the consequences. In Acts chapter 5, when Peter and the apostles were put on trial and told not to preach about Jesus in direct conflict with the Great Commission, Peter's response in verse 29 of Acts chapter 5 is this, but Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. Peter proclaimed, we're going to obey God first rather than men. It was the same for Daniel, who would not stop praying to the one true God, even though there was a Persian law that said you could not pray, and he chose the consequence of being thrown into the lion's den. Daniel's three friends also defied the edict of the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar and refused to bow down to a golden image and were subsequently thrown into the fiery furnace. And remember the midwives in the book of Exodus, who did not do as the king of Egypt asked them to do and kill all male babies born to a Hebrew woman, as Exodus chapter 1 recounts. And it was because they feared God, the Bible notes of them. God's authority and commands always supersede that of any government and leader. You and I do not have to follow a leader or government official or even the authority of our own parents if we are forced to sin against God in our spirit-filled conscience. As Tom Constable writes, such was the position of some pastors in Nazi Germany during World War II, for example, who went to prison not for revolting against the government, but for speaking out against it. 
Another alternative might be to flee from the persecution of a hostile government, as Matthew chapter 10, verse 23 tells us. This is what the Huguenots who fled from France to England and the Puritans who fled from England to America did. And while verse 3 says, you will be praised for doing good, it may not come from the evil government, but it will certainly come from the Lord and often by the world that sees it. Diedrich Bonhoeffer, a German Lutheran pastor, was known for a staunch resistance to the Nazi dictatorship, including vocal opposition to Hitler's euthanasia program and genocidal persecution of the Jews. He was arrested in April of 1943 by the Gestapo and hanged on April 9 of 1945 as the Nazi regime was collapsing. But his legacy was such that his life exerted great influence and inspiration for Christians across denominations and ideologies. That certainly is him being praised for doing what is right, as verse 3 indicates. Now, the second scenario is what if the government goes against the Bible but doesn't force you to do it? For example, the government permits euthanasia or what is known as mercy killing but does not force it upon all those with terminal illnesses. In a case where the sin committed is optional, then we are to continue to submit to that governing authority. That means, for example, if there are some corrupt officials in the tax office and we have the option to sin or not, we are still to submit to their authority and pay the right taxes under the law, but are not to commit sin ourselves paying a bribe under the table. We should not break the law and thus sin to protest an unbiblical or ungodly practice that the government only permits but does not force. For example, destroying an abortion clinic or killing a doctor who performs abortions and thus committing murder does not justify your actions. If you disagree with an existing law or practice, as Christians, we should pursue whatever legal options exist to try to get the law changed. Because protesting something by breaking the law violates the principles being taught, as using chaos and unruliness to bring about good and order is not biblical. Now that being said, submission to governing authorities doesn't mean you can't protest within the bounds of the law. It doesn't mean you can't peacefully protest in constructive ways and let your displeasures be known. It may take some time, but you can use the legislative and judicial process to impact change and to voice your concerns and displeasures. My friends, work through the legal process to affect change. It may be long and hard, but its effect is more lasting. The freedom of speech to voice one's opposition to a leader and to a certain law should be legal, productive, and most importantly, Christ-honoring. Christians should speak out against abuses of power and injustice to the proper channels and in a way that reflects Christ. For we must not associate submission with silence, as silence can sometimes inadvertently signal approval to a watching world. If governments are God's channel for promoting good and maintaining order, then it is imperative that we do not only protest, but more importantly, we pray for our leaders, even the ones we don't like and didn't vote for, that God would work in their hearts to lead well. Look what Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. Therefore, I exhort, first of all, that supplications prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, 
who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. A leader that has the wisdom from God to lead well will bless the entire nation, which includes you and me. As much time as we spend criticizing a leader, the Bible tells us much more we are to pray for them who are in authority over us that they may lead well. And this is for our benefit. I know it's hard to pray for your enemies and to pray for people you don't like, especially those in government. But it is a command here from God that we are to do so because they are appointed by God to maintain order and to promote good. Leaders do learn. They can change. They can improve. And if we all pray for them, perhaps God will work in their hearts to be the God-fearing, wise leader we desire to lead us. Look at me now at verses 6 and 7 of Romans chapter 13. For because of this you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render therefore to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. In these verses, Paul uses a very specific example of what submission to authority looks like and does so in the example of paying taxes. He writes very clearly that we are to fulfill our responsibilities and obligations under the law and pay our taxes. As taxes and customs are what supplies revenue to a government, we have a Christian obligation to fulfill this responsibility in order to keep the government functional. Again, the idea of governing authorities being appointed by God is stressed, as here government workers are described as God's ministers, and we're told in Luke chapter 10, verse 7, that we are to support God's servants. Even if the leaders or individuals in a government are corrupt and unworthy of being supported and given money, the government as a whole cannot be generalized as not deserving of our biblical responsibilities of paying taxes. Now, we may justify that we are propping up an evil regime and therefore do not need to fulfill our obligations under the law. But this is where God's sovereignty helps us cope. God will deal with governments and leaders as He sees fit. We simply have to fulfill our responsibilities under the law, which pleases God. Because, you know, you and I have different ways by which we justify why we don't want to pay taxes such as our tax money being used for purposes that are in opposition to God's will and not used righteously. So therefore, I will not pay taxes and support these corrupt practices. Surprisingly, Paul doesn't allow for these types of excuses and says clearly, pay your taxes and fulfill your responsibilities as a citizen of the world as is required by law. How it is used and stewarded is an issue for the leader and government and between them and God and God will call them to account and judge them. Now, putting it all together, we have our third biblical principle. Biblical principle number three, fulfill our responsibilities and obligations under the law. Fulfill our responsibilities and obligations under the law, regardless of the type of leaders we have and the government we're under. Fulfill our responsibilities and obligations under the law. Now, some may say, but this is Paul writing. What would Jesus do? What would Jesus do in a situation where the government was corrupt, guilty of murder, and stole lots of money from the people? Well, we don't have to guess because we can know for sure because the same question was asked of Jesus in Mark chapter 12, verses 13 to 17. Mark chapter 12, verses 13 to 17. Remember, Jesus lived in the land of Palestine where the Roman authorities had conquered the land and oppressed the people. They murdered many people. 
They stole monies and jewelry from the Jewish people. They stole and depleted the treasuries of the Jewish people. They rewarded their cronies, people like Herod, who would work with them, and killed anyone who dared to oppose them without any justice or them having their day in court. They simply crucified them along the roads for all to see. Now, how did Jesus respond? Did he call for a revolution against the Roman government? Reading Mark chapter 12, verses 13 to 17. Then they sent to him some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to catch him in his words. When they came to him, they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and care about no one, for you do not regard the person of men, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why do you test me? Bring me a denarius that I may see it. So they brought it, and he said to them, Whose image and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus answered and said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Did Jesus spend all of his time fighting the unjust system of his day? He knew full well that paying the imperial taxes would help support a corrupt system. But his answer and actions should be ours. Jesus asked him to bring a Roman coin with a picture of Caesar engraved on it and said, look whose picture is on that coin. Now fulfill your obligations to the Roman world in which you live, but also likewise fulfill your obligations to God. In other words, submit to the governing authorities which you are under and don't spend all of your time fighting the system because you have other obligations you need to fulfill which are more important obligations, obligations to God. My friends, there must be balance. Christians who are concerned about social welfare, civil, human, and environmental rights, getting someone elected, should be equally or more concerned with the charge we have from God to do the work of the Great Commission in sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with fervor and passion. Christians willing to go door-to-door to campaign for an elected official, post things on social media about your favorite leader, attend countless rallies, should have even more passion going door-to-door to tell people about Jesus, declaring publicly about your Christian faith on social media, and faithfully attending church. So by all means, show your displeasure with what you don't believe to be right according to the Bible, and do it through the proper legal processes if you must. But with our limited time each day and on earth, you and I know we have to pick our fights because we can't fight for every injustice out there. First and foremost as Christians, it should be our fight to make sure all of our friends and family, and even those we do not know, that they will hear the gospel message which alone changes lives and brings about true justice and social reforms as it begins correctly with a change in one's heart. Again, look at the words of Jesus in John chapter 18, verses 33 to 36. Then Pilate entered the praetorium again, called Jesus, and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, Are you speaking for yourself about this, or did others tell you this concerning me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priest have delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. 
In response to Pilate's question of whether Jesus was the king of the Jews or not, Jesus' reply was that his kingdom was not of this world, meaning Jesus was not planning on overthrowing the Roman occupiers, destroying the pagan Hellenistic culture, and setting up a kingdom at that present time. His was a bigger and better kingdom. And notice how Jesus added that if he was intent on overthrowing the Roman government and setting up a utopic land where everything was fair and just at that moment, that his followers would have fought back against the system. And he would have told the people to fight back against those who attacked him and those who falsely arrested him. But Jesus did not ask them to fight the government in non-legal ways to usurp their authority. Implied in Jesus' statement is His instruction for them to submit to their authority. And by doing so, they are submitting to God's sovereign will, which would lead to Jesus' death on the cross. But in the process, gave salvation and eternal life to all people who would believe. My friends, there will never be a perfect and righteous kingdom until Jesus Christ establishes the future millennial kingdom when He will rule here on earth. So let's temper our emotions and passions if we don't like a leader or the government and instead channel that same emotion and same passion to winning people to Jesus Christ and discipling them while fulfilling our responsibilities and obligations under the law to the glory of God and to serve as a witness to the unbelieving world. Finally, look at verses 11 and 12 with me of Romans chapter 13. And do this knowing the time that now it is high time to wake out of sleep For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Paul concludes this chapter by reminding us that whenever we get bogged down with the many fights of this life, remember that Jesus is coming soon and we must give an account of our lives even as Christians. What will we tell Him we did with our time? What is it we fought for? What did we invest our energy, emotions, effort doing that counted for eternity? I know that everyone desires justice and truth, but with fake news and troll farms infiltrating social media, it is going to be harder to find time to fight all of it. Satan is the great deceiver, and he loves nothing more than causing division, and he's an expert in how to get people to turn on each other. He knows that fighting for perceived injustice will suck up all of your time that you will no longer have time for spiritual things and turning people's perspective eternal. So Satan gives us a lot of temporary things to fight about, temporal things to fight about. Listen carefully. I'm not saying we should not fight for social injustice. I'm simply saying you and I have to weigh the time we have and make sure the gospel work is being done first. Even if someone gets a better, more comfortable life, even if reparations are made and if justice is served, It will not save them eternally. They will still spend eternity in hell forever if they don't know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. Jesus, Paul, the apostles, the early church all lived in the corrupt Roman world. Yet their singular focus was on the gospel message and its propagation. And through the changed lives of people, discipled to have a heavenly mindset, it naturally led to the changes in Roman culture and governmental institutions. Unity was such a central theme in Scripture that there was no canceling of people if they disagreed with you. The early church did not break fellowship over minor things, but sought to keep the unity because they were focused on reaching the world for Jesus Christ. Having a heavenly mindset encourages us 
to look beyond the disappointments of life, to find hope and encouragement that the Lord will make sure justice is perfectly served. And one day, we will all live under a theocratic monarchy, under the perfect, just, and righteous rulership of Jesus. Until that time, let's submit to God's sovereignly allowed governing authorities and work hard to live out and do the work of the Great Commission. As James Johnson writes, believers must pursue a biblical balance in the midst of this battle. Political party allegiances for the Christian are temporary and conditional. The Christian's allegiance is to be solely dedicated to the principles of the Word of God. If a pastor or a Christian is expounding on politics more than he's proclaiming God's Word, he is missing the balance and straying away from his God-given calling as a Christian. A servant of Christ should be known for speaking the gospel of Jesus Christ. My friends, we live out the gospel of Jesus Christ by living out the truth of the Bible in which it is taught that we are to, number one, submit to governing authorities because they are appointed by God. Number two, pray for our leaders as governments are God's channel for promoting good and maintaining order. Number three, fulfill our responsibilities and obligations under the law. May we all submit to how God desires for Christians to live in these times. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your words. For many of us, these principles will be very hard to implement in our lives because we want our ways to be accomplished. But help us to pray always that not my will, but your will be done. Help us, Father, to live in such a way that the world sees that we humbly submit to the governments which you've appointed us to live under because we submit to your ultimate authority. Help us to speak up in the proper context when we see injustice and we see things that are not consistent with what you have taught in the Scriptures. But Lord, give us the wisdom and discernment always to make sure that we do things in a way that is holy and pleasing and that is Christ-honoring. Most of all, Father, I pray that the passions and emotions that we have will always be directed to fulfilling the Great Commission so that, Lord, when we see you face to face, we can give you an accounting of our lives and it will be a life well lived. Thank you, Lord, for your words. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.